Hello my friends, this is Sarah from Weird Horizon, where we explore topics on the spooky, the esoteric, the countercultural, and the just plain weird. And I am back after a, a slight absence. I had to take a few weeks away just because life stuff's gotten quite complicated, but I am back now and I've got a little idea of what topics I want to cover and I'm really excited to cover these subjects. So hopefully back on it and you will get more regularly scheduled content from me. So today we are going to be beginning a new series exploring the history of witchcraft with a particular focus on its overlap with the treatment of women generally. So women helping women and the roles of women in predominantly patriarchal societies And this overlap with the history of witchcraft, a concept whose meaning uh, adapts and changes as the years pass. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only person to notice that we are living in a time where the bodies of women are policed and controlled to an extent that I think many people, me included, naively thought that we had kind of left behind Um, in quote-unquote less enlightened times. Now, obviously, as mentioned, this is an incredibly naive viewpoint and kind of says more about me and my biases and how much I can kind of ignore what's going on in the rest of the world and assume that things are better than they are. But to sum it all up, I said we live in a time when women's bodies are weaponized and politicized to an extent where it is every day. Every day you're hearing news about women being oppressed to the extent that I just did not think was possible in the year 2022. (laughs) And, you know, happening on our doorstep. And witchcraft as a reason to denounce women, particularly vulnerable women or women of a lower social standing, as well as witchcraft as a descriptor of the many ways women had to covertly help other women in times of need, is a very interesting subject and a very sort of apt subject, I would feel, at this time. In terms of witchcraft, although women were not the only victims of the many attempts to suppress witchcraft and all that it came to be described as, and all the things generally gathered under its umbrella... This discussion will focus primarily on the female victims, but I do acknowledge, of course, that witchcraft is not solely the history of women. And today we are going to be exploring somewhat of a brief overview before focusing on coming weeks on particular topics and particular themes in this history. But as it has a long, fairly continuous history stretching up into modern day, a broad context is useful to us in order to delve a little deeper in. So this overview is particularly informed by A History of Magic, Witchcraft and the Occult, which is a gorgeous book which was gifted to me by a good friend. And if you want to immerse yourself in the imagery of witchcraft through the ages, I couldn't recommend it enough. But for now, let's get into it. So from the 14th to the 18th century, around 50,000 people were executed for witchcraft in Europe and North America, of which around 80% of these victims were women. 
and the context for this did not develop overnight. But Christian theologians, as early as the 13th century, began to draw parallels between the work of demons or the devil and certain forms of medicine and occult or esoteric belief. So the Catholic or Counter-Reformation in response to the Protestant Reformation also saw increasing ways in which religion would seek more stringent control over the lives of regular people. And much of what was condemned in contrast to true faith came to fall under the moniker of witchcraft. A witch can mean different things to different people, but when speaking of witches as those illegally tried and executed during the infamous witch trials, a witch was said to have certain identifying marks, being things such as sagging breasts, excess facial hair, poor teeth, sunken faces, all said to be crone-like descriptors, i.e. descriptions of an ugly older woman. And simply meeting some of these expectations or having some of these descriptors was enough of an association with witchcraft to put one in danger. So all of these characteristics we're describing are all natural byproducts of aging and often more prominent in those of a lower income or those who had done more manual labor or people who've just led harder lives in general. These were all characteristics, though, which clashed with many of the idealized concept around women. So the romantic tropes of courtly love, for example, of the ideal woman being pure, unmarked, young and kind of untouchable. And in contrast to this, all of these characteristics were signs of a woman who had led a life, who had naturally aged, who may have born children at some point, but now was coming to the latter stages of their life. For many reasons, many cruel reasons, I should say, all of these aspects of just natural aging came to be associated with this crone-like sort of haggard image of the witch. So when you picture a witch, you know, warts, hairy moles, crooked noses, like I said, sunken faces, large chins and ears. These are all exaggerated aspects of what may happen to a woman. They can happen to men, of course, as well, but they were particularly associated with women and kind of child-rearing aspects, as mentioned. And it was, of course, predominantly women who would fall foul of this accusation of witchcraft just due to how they looked and have their bodies then scrutinised by their accusers. And they would seek certain marks on the body of the witch. So one mark sought in particular was called the witch's mark and was said to be a surefire indicator that the woman or that the accused was in fact in league with the devil and the mark was physical evidence on her body of their agreement. So primarily used in the 16th and 17th century as a kind of diagnostic tool, this mark could be anything from a scar or a scrape to a burn or brand or any kind of unusual discoloration 
all were said to be caused by the physical touch of the devil upon the body, and that these witches were said to be in league with the devil and to have made a pact with him, a union many claimed to be sexual in nature. So again, this association between a physical touch on the body and the sexuality of these women runs throughout these accusations of witchcraft. The witch's teat was also another mark which was incredibly broad in its description, but said to be the way in which the witch might feed their familiar in return for their magical or demonic help. So a witch's familiar could take the form of many kinds of animals, so cats, rodents, toads and frogs, and honestly all kinds of animals could be accused as being a witch's familiar. And this teat was supposed to be the way in which they would physically suckle on her body and gain sustenance in return for their demonic help. And again, this image of them suckling at the tea underlines this perverse link that is being drawn between motherhood and the devil and just sexuality in general of these predominantly older women or lower class or more vulnerable women. And this stems at least in part from the belief in the original corruption of Eve and her role as the first mother. It also, of course, contained a not unhealthy sprinkle of disdain for just older women in general, and the idea that they may have some kind of active sex life, and that this idea in itself is distasteful. And wrapped up in these ideas of courtly romance was, of course, the implication that women who did not fit the rigid descriptors that are held up as the example of the perfect woman were not worthy of romantic or sexual love and had lost their utility as objects to be held up for worship. Now, the Malaeus Maleficarum was an incredibly popular book which all but defined the image of the witch in popular culture and underlined these points in great detail. So cementing the association between the witch and a perverted motherhood through women's quote-unquote natural proclivity for evil as an effect of their innate weakness and vulnerability to evil. So just by being a woman, it argued, one was automatically in danger of the devil creeping in and seducing you to evil. So wickedness, sex, and a physically marked body were all dangerously intertwined. And it was a kind of catch-22 which encompassed pretty much all women. All women were in danger of this. All women could be accused, as mentioned, due to their natural proclivity to evil, their natural weakness to the devil of being ensnared in witchcraft. Now, the witch's teat could look variously like a a third nipple, or a skin tag, wart, mole, or any other patch of unusual skin. And of course, the judgment of what counted as unusual was down to the accuser. And the process by which the accused were examined was dehumanizing and humiliating, and involved being stripped and shaved of all hair, and inspected for any defects or marks. 
And if by some miracle, no blemish, no mark, nothing is found upon your body, the witch's body was then to be pricked with pins in order to find an area of so-called insensitive skin, which could then be named as this witch's teat, and therefore proof of their involvement with witchcraft. So the best case scenario in this situation is humiliation, degradation, and lengthy torture. (laughs) It's not a fun history, but it's not the entire history, so it's not something that I will focus on throughout, but it is something that I will, of course, cover as part of this history. But it is not the only aspect to the history of witchcraft. But in brief, there... Once a woman was accused of being a witch, or once a person was accused of being a witch, the accusation was pretty much enough for you to be doomed. Many were forced to undergo torture, and forced to confess under torture, or killed in service of proving their guilt or innocence. It is an injustice for which many countries are apologising for to this day and posthumously pardoning those accused of witchcraft and tried in these sham trials, which are one of the sort of darkest aspects of religious history. But those accused of witchcraft were accused of all manner of spells and magic, including but not limited to the use of herbs and plants to poison and control others, divination and fortune-telling in general, as well as being capable of unnatural acts. Their control over men, particularly if they were women, was believed to be in itself heretical and demonic in origin, and was also often enough to accuse them of witchcraft. Thus, famous and influential women, particularly powerful and assertive ones, were also under particular danger of being accused of witchcraft, So there really wasn't a comfortable ground. If you were female, you were in danger of being accused of witchcraft. There really wasn't a lot of safe space for you. And from this descriptor, of course, we can see a lot of tensions at play. The ways in which female bodily autonomy was suppressed by this witch moniker. So many of these witch attributes were natural products of ageing. And with the result that pretty much any older woman could be accused of witchcraft with little to no chance of proving their innocence. Women who were kind of on the outskirts of society as well were under particular scrutiny. So if you lived alone or if you lived with other older women outside of the family unit for whatever reason, you were again under particular kinds of scrutiny. So if you didn't fit into the specific roles that were expected of you as a woman, you were scrutinised. We can also see at play at this a suspicion of female friendships and a disdain for more vulnerable and older women in general, and a less than subtle subtext by which women beyond reproductive age were under suspicion for just existing. But as mentioned, a lot of the things accused as witchcraft, had a heavy overlap with natural medicine and just the use of herbs to ease and cure a lot of diseases and ailments. And a lot of these were shared between women. And witchcraft became a way 
in which these friendships between women became stigmatized. And as touched upon, the label crony, for instance, or crone, as a unfair descriptor of unmarried women, held unmarried women under particular stigma, and many queer relationships would also fall under this umbrella. Although, of course, this understanding of sexuality would not be the same in the sort of eras we're talking about, but women-women relationships of different kinds were scrutinised, whether they are platonic, romantic, or otherwise. And powerful women, even women who seem to hold social sway, where sometimes their popularity earned them a pardon from their peers in witch trials, often again, as mentioned, their power put them under suspicion. Accusation of witchcraft was simply one method by which women could be controlled, threatened and reduced to their capacity to bear children, to be mothers, wives, dutiful daughters and objects to be romanticised and nothing more. But to simplify greatly, the struggle between mysticism and esoteric thought and increasingly powerful Christian dogma in Europe and the Americas and the contrast between natural magic and demonic magic was what led directly to the widespread persecution of witches. But witchcraft was in many ways permitted or at least tolerated at many times in Europe. So as mentioned, these witch trials were not the only facet of witchcraft's history. But over time, it came to be situated more and more in contrast or opposition to the dogmatic control of the church and their lengthening powers over people's lives. So the magic these witches were accused of, their brand of natural magic, the use of herbs, crystals and sympathetic magic, was for a time the only magic available to those in the lower classes. And the people practising this magic went by the name of cunning folk. Indeed, herbal medicine, midwifery and magic were disciplines very much intertwined for a very long time and help to manage, to a certain extent, the brutal living conditions of the poorest and most vulnerable in society. Sympathetic magic, in particular, made efforts to draw a parallel between a person's suffering and some superficially similar natural object, with the idea being that disease could be transferred from one to the other. In this idea is the concept of balance and order, a way of making sense of the world, which formed a way of taking solace in narrativizing the seemingly arbitrary and horrible events of one's life and giving them a purpose. There is an obvious overlap here with the utility of faith in general, but these are themes that we've come across in over and over again in mystical thoughts such as Hermeticism and Kabbalah, the general idea of humans representing as a microcosm the movements of the universe's macrocosm, and within this idea the search for a kind of universal truth. So these were ideas which placed the individual as part of a wider context, 
an attempt to kind of distance the individual from the idea that they personally deserved some kind of punishment. And obviously this went quite counter to the stricter ideas imposed by Christianity as time went on. One of the primary ways that Christianity enacted its power over people was this idea of your personal sin and the sort of the idea that the ailments and ills that befall you, you have done something to deserve them happening to you and it is down to you to atone for them. But with sympathetic magic, these illnesses, these ailments could be transformed to, transformed or translated onto something else. It was not a personal punishment that you were working through, it was part of the sort of natural order of the world. But as mentioned, there was a bit of an overlap with faith inherent to natural magic. And the line between religion and medicine has always been a bit of a blurry one. And later ideas about what was considered witchcraft owed its origin to older ideas about illness and what these illness meant. So the 4th and 5th century Christian belief was that disease was in effect divine punishment from God and that therefore cure from disease was also subject to God's graces. Therefore, for a time, interceding in this process in the wrong way was thought to be an affront to God's judgment. But the right kind of medicine and the right kind of religious guidance could be used to right the wrong done and free one from said sin. Things that for a time were aspects of just faith, um, and ways to apply said faith, things like medical divination or magic, sort of turned over time to be seen as signs of demonic possession, as signs of the Antichrist working within you to go against God's plan, to go against the judgment that he has dealt down for you. So there was quite a fine line to tread and this line between religion and magic was constantly changing as kind of more outdated ideas about magic and faith were replaced with newer ones. Early medicine in Europe was built upon the theory that we've already touched on in the astrology series, the theory of the four humours. So the four substances which are ideally at balance within the human body with their imbalance causing diseases, illnesses, etc. So these four substances were blood, phlegm, yellow bile, and black bile. And there were all manner of ways in one could restore the balance between them, including adding and removing these substances from the body. And this theory was based on older Arabic, Greek, and Roman text available in translation for the first time in Europe. And humorism was thought to be able to trace its history all the way through to ancient Egyptian times, but was codified by ancient Greek thinkers, in particular Hippocrates. Although the evidence for Hippocrates believing in this specific kind of humorism is quite scant, um, there are many brands of humorism, but nonetheless, most people who were practicing this believed it had this long kind of precedent and history dating all the way back to ancient Egypt. And the study of these texts, as well as many other 
books of imported wisdom covered subjects as diverse as alchemy, astrology, and mathematics, and formed a kind of school of medicine in which doctors needed to be licensed before they could apply their knowledge. But as can be implied from this broad library of subjects, there was a strong belief in the correspondence between events, the transfer and transformation of energy that is inherent to concepts such as alchemy and astrology, as well as more theological themes, which permeated the stricter, more mathematical disciplines and grew into the new medical ones. And as these ideas grew in popularity, so-called popular medicine, i.e. the wisdom of the cunning folk, was suppressed for not fitting into this model. So their blend of herbal cures and sympathetic magic, where the cure for ailments was often said to resemble the ailment itself, despite its integration often with Christian themes and prayers, and the overlap in many ways with medical astrology, it was seen to clash with this newer, more scholarly theory stemming from these older books, particularly the theory around humorism. To simplify greatly, book learning, particularly that which can trace a longer history, was thought to be at this time superior to the low knowledge or folk knowledge of the lower classes or cunning folk, even if this knowledge had provable utility and provably worked. <laughs> um, I'm sure you can guess as well how many women had access to these newer texts and were permitted to apply their knowledge, become doctors, etc, etc. Just going to leave that hanging there. But nonetheless, much of the knowledge at use in popular magic has provable utility to this day. So for instance, one of the most famous ingredients in use in witchcraft was mandrake, a plant termed little gallows man for its resemblance to a man. So the roots of the creature, which are incredibly poisonous, um, resemble a man. So it was thought to have all kinds of utilities in terms of treating ailments within the body because it resembled the human body. And it was not thought to be just a coincidence that this was the case. So the roots in particular had all kinds of capabilities. Like I said, they are toxic and therefore the ingestion or use of them is capable of causing dizziness, hallucination, an elevated heart rate, for example, but nonetheless had a very real, verifiable, instant effect on the body, which could not be said for some of the attempts to balance the body based on the ideas of humorism. But under this new medical theory, those turning to popular magic were said to be one, going against this new cutting-edge science, and two, opposing God's work, as they were usually too poor or powerless to afford the expense of a new certified doctor, and were trying to alleviate their illness, which was rooted, of course, in sin, by less-than-godly means. And this demonic deal would then, of course, become the reason from their outcasting from society, thus underlining that they deserved their social standing. This cycle continues. But for quite some time, there was a distinct overlap between popular magic and religious life. For instance, the 
worship of Christian relics, such as pieces of the cross or bits of saints or Mary's clothing, for example, they were thought to offer the same kind of healing potential as certain talismans of sympathetic magic. And what was classified as wicked or demonic in this time versus what was classed as the regular application of faith, these were things that were often trading places in response to what was presumed to be cutting-edge religious and scientific thought. But the history of witchcraft does not stop in the 16th and 17th century. It is something that continues up to this day. And the reason I wanted to talk about this subject is for kind of a horrible reason, but something I remember from earlier in the year when Roe versus Wade was repealed, meaning that in the US millions of women lost their access to abortion as a fundamental human right, was the immediate response from modern witches. It was one of the first responses that I remember seeing for whatever reason, and obviously shock and sadness, but modern witches, some modern witches came forward with some of this knowledge which had been kind of safeguarded for centuries, namely how to safely maintain reproductive health and some natural herbal forms of birth control, which were being shared again by witches for anyone who needed them. And this role of the witch as helping those marginalised by society to preserve control over their own bodies and keep themselves safe, there is still unfortunately a need for this. And when this need arose for millions, witches stepped forward to help. Now I'm not implying that everything shared online under the term witchcraft boils down to medicine or that it is the answer to this crisis that we're undergoing at the moment. But it was interesting to see this reappear in very traditional forms. Although, of course, it, it should not need to. But it goes to show that these struggles inherent to this idea of witchcraft and who's termed a witch and why and for what purpose, this is still ongoing. And although modern day witchcraft has also seen a bit of a reclamation by many communities and helped to kind of distance witchcraft from this application of often men enacting their power over women. Witchcraft has distanced itself from this quite effectively, but that is part of its history. And it is a thread that has been throughout it for centuries. Now this may be a bit of a reach because witchcraft never really fully went away, but I believe, like in the European history of the 15th to 17th century, we are seeing witchcraft rise again, at least in part as opposition to overbearing religious dogma in places such as the US and Iran and vast waves of Europe, in general just the world at the moment. It is a sad fact that in 2022 there are still parts of the world in which you can be imprisoned under suspicion of witchcraft. And this is a suspicion most often again levelled at older women. But as a silver lining I found in my research, although it is very slight, it seems that for as long as people have been condemning witches, there have been those who have noticed that the concept seems to unfairly affect women of a certain age and a certain demographic. 
As early as 1566, Johann Weyer, or Weyer, in his On the Tricks of Demons, pointed out that many women accused of witchcraft were simply vulnerable women with no way of defending themselves. So in his view, magic existed, but these women were not the practitioners of it. He did unfortunately go on to imply that some of the women who viewed themselves as witches were falling foul to the kind of delusions that women were naturally more susceptible to. But he did at least notice that they were playing against somewhat of a stacked hand. Oppression is at the heart of witchcraft, and many forms of magic and witchcraft were galvanised in response to said oppression. So voodoo, a syncretic religion born from Catholic oppression of Afro-Haitian communities during the Atlantic slave trade, holds at its centre a belief in the link between the living and the dead, the material and the spiritual, and this permeates its rituals and practice. The belief in the Haitian religion of the zombie, a creature created when one's body is animated against one's will into action, is believed by many to be a metaphor for the subhuman treatment and status of Haiti's slave populations. In many ways, it echoes this transformation of the witch, in which the most vulnerable, the most powerless individuals in society were transformed into a site of fear and said monstrous nature used as a justification for their oppression, but coming to be used as a way to take back their power and agency. Witchcraft and magic survive to this day. Just as the Haitian zombie has been transformed and the much maligned and misunderstood religion morphed into something feared yet protected, the enduring image of the witch at least in part, serves to bring back agency to those whose agency has been stripped from them. For this reason, it will likely always be relevant and an important part of human history, in particular the history of the working classes and the oppressed, a history which will likely never end, unfortunately. But on that note, I will conclude our overview for today. So it has been a bit of a brief whistle-stop tour and leaves out a lot, dwells in some places where it probably shouldn't. But we will be coming back to all that we've spoken about today in more detail in the coming weeks. So if this rundown seems simplified and lacking in detail, it is, but we are going to build up from this. This is just a foundation. So next week we are going to continue to explore and focus more specifically on the early history of witchcraft before exploring things such as the witch trials in future episodes. I'm sure you may have noticed a bit of a theme in this podcast, something which drives me to keep following topics for weeks on end. The interest in the regular people caught up in these larger-than-life stories for every topic I've looked into, be it Bigfoot or UFOs or Men in Black, there always seems to be regular people caught up in them. And what I thought would be a bit of a strange curiosity turns out to be 
their response to the world around them and the constant setbacks and constant suffering that they undergo. And the utility of these beliefs, the ways in which you can trace how they help an individual get through each day, really speaks to me. It's one of the aspects of this that I found most interesting in that I can very easily put myself in this position and see how this belief could help with just coping, just getting through each day, getting through each week. Because as someone who is just trying to get it, get through each day, where every day seems to be more hostile to the last, to just humans and just humans existing, I get it. I do, of course, come at this from a sceptical viewpoint. But honestly, a lot of the time I wish I wasn't as sceptical as I was. But I find it endlessly fascinating, these fringe beliefs, and I'm particularly interested in what witchcraft means to those practicing it, and how it survived the injustices of the past and transformed it into something new and something powerful. So I can't wait to learn more about the subject in general, and I hope you'll come back for that. I apologise, this is so bloody self-indulgent. This is, you know, a personal project of mine, and unavoidably, it is... <laughs> you, there's a lot of me in it, and this is how I am, unfortunately. But in the meantime, you can find me wherever you enjoy your podcasts, and you can chat with me on Twitter as Weird Horizon, and on Instagram as Weird Horizon Podcast. So as mentioned, I'm trying to kind of get back into my rhythm at the moment, but I've got a nice little bit of content lined up, so we should be back to weekly uploads. I apologise for the little gap there, but I'm trying, and it's nice to be back. But for now, much love, as always. Bye. Bye.